Hey now, we are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. Get it with your instant analysis of AEW All Out 2020. That is right. The Silver King is here just moments after AEW All Out went off the air to break down every single thing that happened on the company's big summertime pay-per-view. And we have a lot to talk about. In fact, we have plenty of controversial things to talk about, and we are going to get to all of it momentarily. But first, you know how things go here. You need to follow us on Twitter. You do that, the more of you who do it, I will stop asking. The way you can do it is by heading on over to Twitter and typing in Getting Overcast. That's right, we are at Getting Overcast on Twitter. Hit that follow button, reply to our tweets, retweet us, like our tweets. Everything that you do is greatly appreciated. Uh, the other thing you can do for us, of course, is head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave that five-star rating and review. Let us know how much you love the show. Maybe drop the Silver King a line. Let me know how much you appreciate all of the hard-hitting professional wrestling audio we have been delivering over the last couple of weeks. This is our third pay-per-view in as many weeks. We've been doing special shows, instant analysis, and, I mean, after AEW All Out basically lasted until midnight on the East Coast, folks, the Silver King is exhausted. Now, I did have a fun surprise for you set for today's show. It was supposed to feature the return of Blackjack Jack Crosby to do the AEW all-out instant analysis with me. Unfortunately, due to unforeseen circumstances, Jack was no longer able to make it. We will have him back on the show sooner than later, I promise you. But what that does mean is the Silver King will be operating this solo. And I know what you're all thinking. Silver King, he likes NXT better than AEW. He's going to crap all over this. Well, will there be parts of AEW all out I crap all over? You bet your ass there are because they deserve it. But no, I, I you know, go into AEW. Hopefully you guys all heard on the Ultimate Preview and all the talking we've been doing about AEW over the last couple of weeks. There are plenty of things I normally enjoy about this product. But going into this pay-per-view in particular, I was excited, but for only a couple particular matches. And ultimately, that's what I think this show delivered. A couple really good matches and a lot of stuff that is going to be questioned for a long time. Before we get into the instant analysis, you know the rules here on these podcasts, on these special instant analysis podcasts. We crack a beer in order to get into the entire show. And I am rocking a Rogue Bat Squatch Hazy IPA from our good friends at Rogue Brewing. I say good friends like they're sponsoring us. They're not. But hey, Rogue, I absolutely love your beers. I think you have a cold brew, like 2.0 coffee lager or something that is absolutely incredible. So hey, the folks at Rogue, uh, you know, want to send some love our way, I will take it. But they're out in Oregon. They make great beer. And this hazy IPA, it's kind of indicative of the type of show AEW All Out was. It's a good tasting mostly, but you know, it's uh, there's parts of it where you're kind of like, you know, maybe I, I don't want six of these. Maybe I can only do two or three. And I think that's basically what All Out was. It was some good wrestling mixed in with a lot of stuff that I did not really want. And I could not shake the feeling that this felt very much like a WCW pay-per-view. There were a lot of gimmicks, a lot of parts that made you question the booking, and a couple of good matches featuring the top talent in the company woven between all of it. In terms of AEW pay-per-views that have cost money, meaning not the ones that they were giving out for free before Dynamite started, I think this was the worst one that they've put on yet. While there were good matches, there were no great matches. And while storylines developed, there was a lacking satisfaction from the results over the course of the show. I hope that makes sense the way I explain that. There were a few matches on the card that should have been on TV instead. Obviously, there were some huge mistakes in the show that we will discuss later. When it comes down to it all, All Out... Probably, 
lived up somewhat to expectations because my expectation level for the show was mid-range pay-per-view. But I think when you consider that this is all out, it's one of the company's two signature shows along with Double or Nothing. And the way they discussed the show going into it, that it was going to be an epic pay-per-view and maybe the best one AEW has put on yet, it really fell below those expectations. So as you know, we do pre-show and post-show polls. We'll talk about the post-show poll later. It's a lot of P's. Uh, But pre-show, I did a poll on Twitter. 16% of you thought it would be an A. 33% expected a B. 38% expected a C, which was way more than I thought. I thought there was going to be a lot more positivity heading in that B direction. And 13% expected a D or F. So if you want to put it in other terms, about 70% of you expected a B or C pay-per-view. So remember that number when we get to the finish here. But with that, let's jump into the instant analysis of AEW All Out. And as always, we start with the main event and we work our way backwards. Let's start with the AEW Championship. John Moxley, the champion, successfully defending the title against MJF. This was a good classic style wrestling match that definitely deserved to main event the show, even though I was more excited for the tag team title match entering All Out. The color that MJF got added to the brutality of the entire thing, and it showed, especially when he locked Moxley in the salt of the earth and then hit the heat seeker late in the match. MJF had a lot of 2.9 kickouts, which felt actually like a tad too much overselling. And that's not a criticism I usually make, especially not for him. I thought MJF throughout the match might play a little bit of a chicken shit heel role, but he really went toe-to-toe with Moxley from a brawling standpoint. The crossroads late in the match was a cool tongue-in-cheek moment for him. And then came the finish with Wardlow throwing the dynamite diamond ring, distracting the referee, which gave Moxley an opening to hit the band Paradigm Shift to beat MJF. That finisher was not supposed to be legal in the match. I guess the finish, as they booked it, protected MJF taking the pin because the move was supposed to be banned, but it also kind of made it look as if Moxley could not beat MJF without breaking the rules of the match. Kind of weakens Moxley, considering when you look at these two guys side to side, you have to look at Moxley as this guy who should be winning this match. And the only reason he maybe can't is the paradigm shift. And I know they teased it a couple times during the match, but it was a lot more even than that. And you feel like Moxley, considering he's submitted people previously, would have had other ways to beat MJF than just relying on the paradigm shift. That said, it was somewhat in the style of a face Eddie Guerrero type of win where He would notice someone else is about to cheat the heel and say, screw it, I'll cheat better and I'll win because I'm a better cheater. It was not the worst finish in the world, but Moxley, he never really felt in danger of losing. And when you come out of it, this is a guy who hasn't had the best title reign as it is. And he wasn't really able to win within the confines of the rules because he had to cheat to win. So yes, it keeps MJF looking strong, but it kind of comes at a little bit of a detriment to Moxley. And now that he has another challenger coming up, we'll talk about him in a little bit. You wonder, is Moxley strong going into a match against a strong challenger? And when is that match going to be? Are they going to give us that on a dynamite? Or are they now going to be able to hold out basically two months to full gear, which I think is November 7th, if memory serves. Are they going to be able to wait two months for that match? These are all really good questions that we're going to have to talk about later. But in terms of the main event, solid match. You know, I don't usually grade each individual match on here, but I would say it was a B, a solid B, and there's nothing wrong with that. Next up on the show, or I guess preceding it, Orange Cassidy defeated Chris Jericho in a Mimosa Mayhem match. This match started at 11 p.m. with a Jericho promo talking about how this isn't a feud or a program or a storyline but an experiment about whether he can turn Orange Cassidy into a main eventer. I can see that promo coming from him Wednesday after maybe losing the match. But before a match, I don't need you to break kayfabe for me to enjoy your product. You don't need to tell me 
what this is and what it isn't and almost preface yourself losing to say, hey, look, I'm not really trying to win this feud. This is just me, a wrestler in this fake world trying to get someone over. It felt really strange for them to do it in that moment. And this version of Chris Jericho, that's the demo god and and doing these kinds of things, for me personally, it's not as entertaining as the guy that we had seen previously in AEW and in New Japan, and obviously during his run in WWE. But that's not to say he didn't do silly things in WWE. He certainly did. But the way that they're doing it now, it's just not the strongest for me. Uh, As far as the match goes, the Codebreaker out of the gate was a really fun start, and this was a largely decent match, though Orange Cassidy took so much punishment early that it was surprising at times that Jericho was unable to just dump him in the mimosa. Orange Cassidy had a nice run after playing from under all match, and you could definitely feel the want for him to win based on the story they told in the ring. So they did a really good job in that regard. Orange Cassidy ate another code breaker, flying off the top rope late, and still kicked out. And I know Jericho's finish now is the Judas effect, but the code breaker has to be dead as a finisher if you're kicking out of a regular one, and then you're kicking out of a basically super code breaker. Then the finish came with Jericho kind of on the top rope, hanging off a little bit to the outside. Orange Cassidy hit two orange punches, I guess, or Superman punch type of moves, sent Jericho flying off the top rope and into the mimosa. And that moment was legitimately funny. And Jericho kind of just waiting in there like an old man in a hot tub, really funny. Um, Parts of this match were fun. And the finish using the mimosa was successful because neither man ultimately had to take the pinfall. That's what we talked about in our ultimate preview. But This is a greatly reduced version of Jericho compared to the Painmaker and Le Champion. This is a guy who is almost a caricature of himself. And maybe that's the point. Maybe that's exactly what he's trying to play. But in terms of relevance and dominance in AEW, this is a guy who has now lost the title His faction continues to lose, even though they were supposed to be extremely strong. And he's now lost two out of three matches to Orange Cassidy. So I just didn't necessarily appreciate the booking for this entire thing. I do kind of feel, and I did say this previously, that there was supposed to be a Chris Jericho-Mike Tyson match at All Out. And for one reason or another, probably due to Tyson's scheduling and that fight he's trying to do with Roy Jones... They were unable to make it happen, so they extended the Orange Cassidy feud, which was only supposed to be an interim feud. But at the end of this whole thing, yes, Orange Cassidy does come out of it with some more relevance from having beaten Chris Jericho twice, but Jericho comes out of it looking pretty bad, and maybe he's about to take time off and do more like COVID type of risky tours with Fozzie. Um, but if he's not, and he's just going to be on TV Wednesday and going forward, I don't really know what they do next with him. So it will be interesting to see where AEW goes from here. The tag team championship match, Kenny Omega and Adam Hangman Page defended their titles unsuccessfully against FTR, losing the championships after I believe nearly a 200 day reign as champion. Omega showed out in a major way during this match. He flashed the old Omega, the one that we've wanted back forever. He had an awesome tope over the top rope. Uh, FTR, on the other hand, worked a very classic heel tag team style match, which led this to being a lot slower and methodical um, than what we have come to expect from AEW tag team matches. It was a stark contrast to what we normally get from AEW tag matches. It was a really interesting contrast, though, of styles, um, especially with Omega going up against FTR. It was it was just different to kind of see that. They did the superplex into the splash. That was a great near fall. Both Hangman Page hot tags over the course of the match were highlights for me, and that flying senton was absolutely incredible. Hangman also had that in- incredible, insane flying moonsault slam, which was my highlight of the entire match, and honestly... I think it was actually the best move of the entire show. Hangman then avoided hitting the buckshot lariat on Omega as Omega was holding Cash Wheeler. 
only for Omega to accidentally drill Page with the V-trigger as Page held cash. FTR then took out Omega's knee, hit Hangman Page with not one, but two spike pile drivers and got the win. So overall, this was a good match. It had its low points. It also had its high points. It did not compare whatsoever to the Hangman Page, Kenny Omega match against the Young Bucks, but this was probably, all things considered, the best match from a work rate standpoint, at least, on the entire show, which is what I expected going into it. Now, coming out of the match, Omega feigned like he was going to hit Hangman with a tray table, didn't, then he refused to hug him, and then he stormed off backstage where he left in a huff Uh, With the Young Bucks, he totally forgot to sell the knee that he was selling the entire match. It was supposed to be so badly injured that he could not break up the final fall. But once he was huffing and puffing to the back, knee was totally fine. Omega talked about going back to the way things were. Then he left in an SUV while the Young Bucks kind of stayed there perplexed at Daly's place for the rest of the show. This storyline is more intriguing than anything else right now. If you remember... The calendar year started the very first episode of Dynamite with AEW talking about the elite, whether 2020 would be their year, whether they would find success and fail. So it does feel like they are playing something out extremely long term here. And I do have a feeling, I don't know if this is a heel turn per se for Kenny Omega, but it does feel like something where if they want to get Moxley's next title match out, that Omega can go on a bit of a winning streak over the next month or so and earn a number one contendership match against Jon Moxley, maybe fight him for the title at full gear and maybe take the title as the rejuvenated Kenny Omega that we are all dying to see. We want to see the best bout machine, right? We want to see the cleaner in AEW and through over a year of AEW existing, we haven't really seen that guy. We've seen flashes of it, but we haven't really seen that guy. So it kind of feels like they did it a little bit on purpose and they're maybe playing into that narrative and maybe they'll give us that now. And if it's not Omega versus Moxley, maybe it's Omega versus Hangman Page that we get at full gear. So this is intriguing. This is the storyline I care most about on AEW. And this match, while I did think it was slow at times, it did ultimately deliver for me over the course of the show. Preceding it, we had Matt Cardona, Scorpio Sky, and the Natural Nightmares defeat the Dark Order. I had issues with this match. Um, The placement on the card, first of all, made zero sense. It should have been one of the first couple of matches on the show. Tag team rules were absolutely irrelevant. The finish was a surprise with the faces going over Dark Order as Colt Cabana kind of failed to take advantage of what Brody Lee laid out for him and then got rolled up. That felt like a feel-good pay-per-view booking move instead of smart booking. Brody Lee just won the uh, TNT, I almost said NXT, just won the TNT title and annihilated Cody. So now he loses an eight-man tag team match and Dustin Rhodes gets over on his faction. I think they could have waited for this result. This was a dynamite television match on pay-per-view. Didn't need it on the show. If you were going to put it on the show, should have done it a lot earlier on the show. But even though I didn't expect much, I was still disappointed. The booking coming out of the match with Dustin getting the TNT title match against Brody Lee on Wednesday night, that was solid. And Dustin's promo was honestly the best moment of the entire night up until that point. So prior to the final three matches on the card, I absolutely loved his promo. The match itself, the booking, I get why they're doing it. It felt like they could have put more air between it. It, It's just, it really wasn't for me. And even just doing the match on the show what didn't hit home for me. Now, before that match, there was a backstage interview with Kip Sabian who said he and Penelope Ford are getting married and he will unveil his best man on Dynamite. It has felt all week to me, like Rusev, real name Miroslav, and he goes by Miro. It felt all week like he's going to debut on Dynamite. Tony Khan has been teasing a big surprise. Now you have Kip Sabian talking about bringing in a best man. But even if it's tongue-in-cheek, can you imagine Rusev debuting in a wedding angle after that is one of the, basically the final angle that he had in WWE? And then Sabian also had a sign with his Twitch URL on it, another clear 
shot that AEW is taking at WWE. It was totally eye-rolling for me, and it was pretty much a hard sell considering what happened earlier in the night with Matt Hardy, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. We're also going to talk about the Twitch and third-party app type of stuff that made big news you know, towards the tail end of this week with WWE, but we're going to go ahead and do that on Tuesday show. I'm not going to ruin the all-out instant analysis by talking about that, but I mean, look, I know in many ways AEW is playing to its fan base and its fans, at least some of them, a portion of them, like when they take shots at WWE, but it is so frequent and most of the time it's not particularly good. If you're going to take a shot, take a shot. And this one was just kind of, it fell short. The storyline about the Twitch streams and all this stuff with WWE got completely blown out of proportion as it is. So it just felt like taking a shot to take a shot. Um, and yeah, I mean, if this is how they end up debuting Rusev, and I don't know that he's going there. I, I could just be totally in my own head about it. Maybe it's someone else. Uh, maybe he doesn't show up and there's a different surprise. I don't know. But the whole thing didn't really ring great to me. And you have to remember that at this point in the show, we're coming off of a really disappointing first two thirds of the show. So then you go into that and you're like, what the hell are they doing here? It felt second rate. It felt kind of kiddie. Um, so let's, let's stop on that. Let's keep talking about the rest of the show and you'll kind of feel why I, or you'll understand why I feel that way going into that segment. Uh, preceding that was the women's championship match, Hikaru Shida defending her AEW women's championship against Thunder Rosa, currently the NWA women's champion. Admittedly, this seemed to be a good match from the opening bell, but I was pretty upset and shell-shocked from what I saw in the prior match, which we will talk about obviously momentarily. And it didn't just kill me and take me out of the game of the pay-per-view, it murdered the crowd. The crowd was just absolutely dead for this match. Rosa is a quality wrestler with a full impressive repertoire. She could step into AEW tomorrow, if signed full-time, and be the most talented women's wrestler, injured or healthy, on the entire roster. I could go through and name a dozen moves that she hit that like totally sold me on her. But the Death Valley driver on the ring apron was an exceptional spot. The women wrestled evenly, but the finish happened pretty suddenly out of nowhere, with Sheeta coming out on top. If this match came at a different point in the card, or maybe in front of a full crowd, it would have absolutely rocked and rivaled for best women's match in AEW. Because of the circumstances under which it occurred, and the atmosphere under which it occurred, I think ultimately it's going to be forgotten. But Sheeta and Rosa put on a damn good match. I was glad it was on the show. I know I wasn't thrilled that they basically created a number one contender out of thin air. But if you want to build up this women's division... You need talent like Thunder Rosa on your brand. And I don't know that she's going to sign. You know, I don't know exactly what they're going to do, but I enjoyed this very much. And I thought it was an underdog match on the show um, that I think ultimately is going to get overlooked and forgotten because of what happened right before it. And what happened right before it was the low moment on the entire show, the broken rules match between Matt Hardy and Sammy Guevara. I'm going to take an extra sip here before I talk about this one. The start made me laugh, okay? With Sammy driving the golf cart in a great callback. They're brawling on the concourse, and it's good until they take that spot off the scissor lift that was clearly supposed to go through a table, but Hardy instead landed flush on concrete. It was a stupid spot that never should have been set and included in the match in the first place, considering you were doing it on top of a concrete floor. So even if you're taking a table bump, there's no mat underneath, and maybe there would have been a mat a little bit underneath the table. But you have to assume a portion of your body is not going to hit the table. It was way too close to the scissor lift. Then they do the spot, And Hardy goes off of it, basically completely misses the table. I think the table saved his legs from hitting the floor. But his, the back of his neck, his shoulders, 
his spine, the majority of his back, maybe his entire back, landed from probably, I don't know, eight to 10 feet in the air onto hard concrete. And Matt Hardy is clearly hurt by it. It looked like he was knocked unconscious. Aubrey Edwards runs over and she's not counting, even though it's basically a last man standing match, despite Matt Hardy being down for 20 seconds. She's leaning over him, trying to talk to him, seemingly not getting responses. Maybe he was blinking his eyes. Then Hardy says something to her. She starts counting. She gets to like three or four. He tries to get up and he is stumbling, like legitimately not working, shoot, stumbling around, either concussed or severely injured. Either he hurt his back or he was concussed. Either way, it seems like they've called the match. They separate both guys, they wave it off, they take Sammy out. And you're like, okay, so something bad happened. It was a stupid spot, but at least they called off the match, right? They're handling this well. But then the cameras are staying with both guys. So at this point, I'm wondering, are we in a work or is this a shoot? And it seems to me like what happened is that it was indeed a shoot, that they took the cameras and they took them off the superstars, wrestlers, I'm sorry, this is AEW. They took them off the wrestlers so that the doctor, Doc Sampson apparently is his name, could do a concussion check or have a conversation with Hardy to see if he could continue the match. That's why they put the camera on commentary for them to talk while those guys were separated. Then they put the cameras back on the wrestlers and apparently they somehow clear Matt Hardy to continue wrestling. But clearly, despite them doing that, say, hey, you know what? Let's just go straight to the finish. So, because they want to get their desired result, I guess. So the, the, the finish isn't just going into the ring and hitting a finisher and ending the match. You have Hardy and Sammy Guevara climbing metal scaffolding, pillars basically, near the entrance and Hardy throwing Sammy off into a crash pad. And you're watching this and you're just saying to yourself, why? Why didn't they just stop the match and go on Dynamite and say, hey, you know, there was an injury and we had to stop the match. We're going to have this match again in the main event of Dynamite two weeks from now. And you're done. And and everyone's semi-happy. Maybe they think Hardy's uh, bump was stupid, sure, but AEW makes the right medical decision and they take care of their talent and all this good stuff. Instead, what we have is Tony Schiavone twice later in the show saying that Doc Sampson talked to Matt, asked if he was okay, checked him out, said it was cool, so they restarted the match. Does anyone in AEW have eyes? Does Tony Khan have eyes in his head where he sees this guy, this old wrestler, Matt Hardy, who... I'm not saying you shouldn't be wrestling. You know, people should work as long as they possibly can and and get paid as much as they possibly can. But maybe he shouldn't be in matches like that, taking bumps like that. Did he not see this guy unable to move, being checked out, and then standing up and stumbling all over himself, literally, literally using Sammy Guevara's tights to try to pull himself up and nearly like de-pantsing him and showing Sammy's ass? Like it was the most, one of the most, not the most, one of the most irresponsible things I've seen in wrestling in a long time. And if you're AEW, you cannot have someone else go out and call a competitor a sloppy shop and do something like that. That's the definition of sloppy shop. If there was a dictionary, there would be a picture of that bump and the finish of that match would be a gif, I should say, right next to the term sloppy shop. It was embarrassing for AEW. And the continuation of what, at the time, was already a bad pay-per-view through the first four matches. We later learned that Matt Hardy went to the hospital. This was absolutely pathetic. And even if you were going to, if you're of the mind that this was a great show, which it wasn't, but let's say you were of that mind. This match alone, the decision-making alone in this should drop it a full letter grade. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if people, not me, but if people saw that and they said, why am I watching this product? AEW should be embarrassed about it and they should be embarrassed 
that they tried to cover for themselves twice on the pay-per-view. Now, I know I'm taping this, and while I'm taping this, they're doing their post-show press conference, and Tony Khan is probably going to say something about it, and maybe he'll figure out some type of PR way to get people to be okay with it. But I doubt it. And at least I don't think I'll be okay with it. There's, I don't care what Matt Hardy said. If you are the owner of this company, if you're in charge of the show and you see that happen on your show, you stop the match, you end it. And they had stopped it. That's really what pisses me off. It's not that it just kept continuing. They stopped it. They separated these guys and they got to a point where they said, okay, we, we can just end it here and we'll continue on. But then they still decided to keep going and give us the finish. That's unacceptable, and it disgusted me when I saw it. And I usually don't go that far. Um, you know, I get upset about angles, and I get upset about stupid stuff. This is real. This pissed me off. And they deserve a lot of criticism for it, and I hope that what I just said did the criticism that they deserved justice. All right, we're going to move on to the Casino Battle Royal, which was for a number one contendership for the AEW Championship. I'm a big fan of this match format. Didn't love this match. The format is very smart. It's a very interesting middle ground between a Royal Rumble and a Battle Royal. It also allows for some really unique booking because you can do it with waves of people entering at a single time and mass eliminations. We saw Matt Slidell, formerly known as Evan Bourne in WWE. He entered as the Joker, their surprise 21st entrant, and nearly broke his neck immediately slipping off the top rope. Darby Allen came in, eliminated Ricky Starks, and they went back to that dumbass body bag gag that I thought we were done with with Darby. And I know Darby didn't bring it to the ring. It was the FTW crew that did. But they're just bringing it back. And it's like, you got you guys did that for like two months and it was stupid and no one liked it. And you're just still bringing it back and doing it again. So they pull it out. They fill the bag with thumbtacks. They zip Darby Allen inside. And I got to say, that was kind of cool. Like, despite me not liking the gag, the idea that this guy's in there filled with thumbtacks, he's about to get his ass kicked. That's pretty solid. But then, rather than just stomp him and suplex him and do things where you would see those maybe get injected into him when they would pull him out of the body bag, let's say, instead of doing that, Brian Cage lifts him up. And with this guy having no vision, because he's in a body bag, and no wherewithal of where he is, he like toss power bombs him like but didn't do it in a way where it looked like Darby could kind of like do a wrestling fall and just tosses him out of the ring onto a platform with stairs and I don't think his head hit the stair but it might have it looked very close and either way that is super dangerous you know the guy's not falling flat it just seemed like a totally unnecessary and dangerous spot and I didn't really like that and it was really there where I said, what are they going to do with the rest of this match? I was a little bit concerned. What I did like was the spot with Brian Cage and Will Hobbs brawling on the ring apron. And then you saw Lance Archer come through and just annihilate them and eliminate both of them. Big meaty man slapping me. <laughs> That's, what That's what I want to see. That's what I got. I got three big meaty men in that one moment. Slapping meat. It was cool. I want to see Brian Cage versus Will Hobbs like fight. And I know it may not be long because Hobbs is not really like a featured guy. I want to see that match. That was cool. Uh, the final three were Archer, Slidell, and uh, Eddie Kingston. Archer hit Slidell with the blackout. Kingston eliminated him. Then Archer choke slammed Kingston off the top rope for the win because Kingston was kind of scared of Jake Roberts. And his snake, which was not out, but it was still in the bag. Overall, this was generally enjoyable, but it went too long. And the winner being one of Cage or Archer is predictable. Usually when you have a battle royal, you have the big guys in there and you're, and yes, they can win. But, you know, you throw in a smaller guy or you throw in a guy who you want to get over. And Lance Archer's already had opportunities and Brian Cage has already had opportunities. If they had done it to Eddie Kingston... That would have been pretty cool. But instead, they just go back to the well with Lance Archer. So now you have Archer as the number one contender. He's going to fight John Moxley. And you're almost in a no-win situation because if Archer beats Moxley, then Moxley's reign is pretty much a failure. If Moxley beats Archer, 
then the only two matches of any substance that Lance Archer has had would be title matches against Cody and Moxley, and he would lose both of them. So I just don't think I would have had him win this, become the contender. If they want to change the title and put it on Archer, I mean, God bless them. I just, I don't see that happening. So ultimately you're just giving Moxley someone else to beat. And after he struggled to beat MJF, what really makes you think he can beat Lance Archer? So that's kind of how I tie all of that together. All right, we're going to keep going here. Young Bucks defeat Jurassic Express. Perhaps this speaks to the high quality of tag team wrestling on Dynamite week to week, but this just felt like a Dynamite match to me until we got to the finish. It was good, not special. There should be at least some larger reason to have a match on pay-per-view. And this was thrown together on Dynamite last week where they teamed up and the winners of that eight-man tag team match would just face each other on the pay-per-view. So, okay, great, they're facing each other, but I have no investment in the winner or loser because there's nothing on the line and it's not a long-term storyline where it's a grudge match or there's a reason for this to happen. This is not full gear. This is not a special episode of Dynamite. This is all out. This is one of your premier pay-per-views of the year and they've been building for it for months. So they really loaded this show. I mean, it was four hours, five if you include the buy-in and three or four matches on this show should not have been on the show. That's a problem for me when you're booking a premier pay-per-view. And this is indicative of that. That said, the match was good. Jungle Boy's dive to the outside was incredible. I love the move where Matt caught Jungle Boy's Huracarana and instead powerbombed him onto the ring apron. Nick did a top rope sent on with Jungle Boy elevated off the bottom rope. That was a really cool spot. The match picked up with the Poison Rana and the extinction level event. Uh, for the near fall, but there were way too many near falls for Jungle Boy. He is not at the level of wrestler right now where he should be able to kick out of everything. I do not need 10 2.8, 2.9 kickouts for the smaller guy in the tag team match against one of the quote-unquote greatest tag teams in the world that, yeah, maybe they didn't hit their finisher, but they hit some pretty devastating moves. You can kick out a 2.5, 2.6, It just felt like he was really, really overdoing it. It was noticeable, and I know I'm not the only one who has that opinion. The Young Bucks picked up the win after the hitting the BTE trigger in what ended up being, as I said, a very good match. You all know I'm not a huge fan of the Young Bucks, but I found myself really liking them much more as heels than faces. Maybe it's because it feels more natural for them to be heels, and maybe it's a better indicator of what I believe they may actually be like. That's not meant as a slight to them or or their real life personas. I don't know them one iota, but the snarkiness, the way they talk on being the elite, and I have not watched that show in about probably six weeks, but I used to watch every episode. The, The type of just idea I get of them, it works so much better as heels than faces. And I love them working as heels. They're brutal. They change up their moveset, and it's really entertaining. So I liked the Young Bucks very much in this match, more than I have in most. Not as good, obviously, as the tag team match against Kenny Omega and Hangman Page, but good match. I just felt like this could have been a featured match on Dynamite as opposed to on a pay-per-view when there was no reason for it to be on a pay-per-view. Speaking of things that had no reason to be on a pay-per-view, Big Swole defeats Britt Baker in a tooth and nail match. This was bad. Mostly failed execution, more than anything else. It went back and forth between being funny and serious, but it succeeded at neither. I was glad they put the wrestlers on the main show because the feud between Britt Baker and Big Swole deserved it. And I I said on the Ultimate Preview, it was ridiculous that this was in the buy-in when you've been building this match for such a long period of time. But what they should have just done was a regular match. Once they moved it from the buy-in to the show, after seeing it taped, they should have realized not to open the main card with it. It made no sense for it to be in this spot. You could have done the eight-man. You could have done the Young Bucks match I just mentioned. This could have been a palate cleanser between a couple things. It just did not make sense for it to be on the main show at the quality level it was, 
and then to open the main show. Just a bad taste in your mouth right out of the gate. This benefited no one. It was easily the worst cinematic match of this era. The one thing I did like was the finish with the gas. It was a smart way to end it without Baker having to get pinned or submitting. But it's laughing gas. And I know laughing gas doesn't necessarily always make you laugh. It would have been a nice touch if she was laughing hysterically, not realizing she had just lost the match after she passed out. Okay, so, you know, maybe that's a nitpick, but I I just thought it would have been cool if they did it that way. And I know that the laughing gas and the anesthesia are, are maybe a little bit different, but, and I'm not a dentist and I'm not a doctor, so I don't know. But as a layman, as a wrestling fan, I just thought that would have been fun. But this was a bad match. It was mostly horrendous. Tony Khan was right giving the booking to have it on the buy-in. I was wrong to suggest that it shouldn't have been there. But what you should have done, what they should have done, is not made this a gimmick match, just had a wrestling match, and put it on the pay-per-view. Now, as far as the buy-in goes, we saw Private Party defeat Dark Order. Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. I forgot. Britt Baker, Big Swole, the first and hopefully last tooth and nail match. Zero point zero. Okay, now we can move on to the buy-in. Private Party defeated Dark Order in a very entertaining match. John Silver, that guy in Dark Order, he really impressed me. This was the perfect kickoff show type of match for a wrestling-heavy pay-per-view. Every second of it was entertaining. My one gripe with Private Party is it feels like they're extremely choreographed compared to some other teams, but I think they're going to get a lot better at that as they gain experience in the ring and you know wrestling featured matches where they plan moves, but they don't necessarily make it where they're helping each other so much to that degree. It just it's, it's something I feel almost every time I watch one of their matches. And then before that, we had Joey Janela defeating El Serpentico or something like that. I'm glad Janela got a win back after being mostly decimated on TV recently. This was nothing to write home about. I don't think this needed to be on the buy-in. The other tag team match was good enough. They didn't need to do anything else. So in terms of our look at this pay-per-view overall and the grading, I think I mentioned something along the lines of 70% of fans thought it would be a B or C going into the show. In our post-show voting, 46.5% said the show was a C and 28.3% said it was a D or an F. So you're looking at, let me do some quick math, 75% of respondents saying the show was a C to an F. And obviously I can't differentiate the D and F because I I didn't break it down that way. But yes, ultimately, this was a bad show. It was AEW's worst pay-per-view. I do not think it was an F, though, if you want to give them an F for the Matt Hardy situation and maybe the tooth and nail match and some of that, okay, I, I could like accept it, but I think that's being a little too harsh. But it, it was bad. And the good matches on the show didn't save it because those matches were not great. Whereas if we had a Omega Page versus Young Bucks match, a five-star caliber match, you could say, okay, that just raises the whole show a letter grade. For me, it doesn't do that. And we didn't have a match like that to allow that to happen. So yes, this was a bad show. Um, I'm probably right on the edge of C- minus or D+. I think D+, may be a little unfair because you did have the main event, which was solid. The Orange Cassidy-Chris Jericho match was good enough. The tag team match was very good. The women's match was very good. So the second half of the show saved it from being a total disaster. The first half of the show was an F. The second half of the show was probably like a B minus. So the way you average those out, it does take you to kind of that, you know, C minus D plus range. I guess maybe watching it live, I would have said D plus. Recapping it now, I'm probably leaning towards C minus. But what I can tell you for sure is this is the worst pay-per-view we've seen from AEW number one. And number two, the worst pay-per-view we've seen probably in this entire pandemic era. And that's with WWE kind of struggling with some of their shows. And especially when you compare this to Payback and SummerSlam recently, this did not hold a candle to either of those. Payback was 
almost a great show. SummerSlam was borderline great as well. This was not. So it looks like everyone is aligned with me, at least in the way I saw this show. And let's hear from a couple of you and see what your thoughts were. First up, we have Andrew Clark at Real Andrew Clark. He says, MJF and Mox and meh. Okay, you know, that's fair. I didn't think um, I didn't think it was, that match was meh, but the show, yes, the show was meh. We also had Dan Wilson at DanDW12786. He says, I love AEW and it kills me that this show was a C, especially since I paid 50 bucks for it. But damn, Battle Royale was a botch fest and Hardy almost died. Jericho Cassidy was good and Mox MJF was solid, but nothing really shined. I think that's totally fair. I did forget to mention, this was a $50 pay-per-view. So it is something different when you get a C- or a D-plus pay-per-view from WWE. You're upset, you invested your time and your brain power and your effort into watching, but ultimately it's part of your $10 subscription every month. I shelled out $50 for this pay-per-view. Many of you did the same. And for them to deliver that type of show was pretty embarrassing, at least in my opinion. Sean McDermott at I'm Bored Brother, he said, all out, can't even sniff, Payback's jockstrap. I did not read these clearly before uh, I'm reading them here. I did say something about, is Tony Khan gonna uh, say this is better than SummerSlam, considering he said double or nothing was better than WrestleMania. Bradley at Ginger Ninja 0420, he replied, the way he hypes everything up, he's probably gonna say it's the best AEW pay-per-view yet. So yeah, I think, uh, you know what? I have a DM as well. One more DM from Jordan at Won't Do The Job. He says, literally a big fan of AEW, watched every episode, went to last year's All Out. This show has been a major disappointment. I can't believe I just audibly groaned that this Dark Order match was next on the card. So he wrote that, I guess, right before the eight-man tag team match. So long story short, coming out of this AEW show, it seems most people agree this was largely a failure for them. And it's disappointing because I think if you listen to our All Out Ultimate preview with Chris Vanini and I, I was excited for this show. I thought there were a couple matches on here that could be great. The women's match, uh, I thought had really high expectations for it. You know, it wasn't bad. It was a good match, but circumstances kind of screwed that. The tag team match did fall below my expectations despite it being good. Uh, the Mimosa Mayhem match pretty much met my expectations ultimately. So all fairness there. And the John Moxley MJF match, that probably met my expectations as well. But it was really the rest of the show and the way AEW booked in totality that as I said in the opening here, it felt more like a WCW pay-per-view than anything else. It felt gimmicky. It felt in some ways, insulting to my intelligence. And that's something we generally say about WWE. And, you know, AEW, we've talked about it many times on this show, and I'll kind of wrap up with this. But the expectation we had when AEW started was this was going to be serious professional wrestling. It's what they told us. The rankings and the wins and losses, those were all going to matter. And we're going to put on five-star matches all the time, and it's going to be really high quality, only the best in the world. That's not what they're giving us. They're giving us sports entertainment. And there is nothing wrong with that. WWE is sports entertainment, and I enjoy WWE. But AEW is not living up to basically their mission statement. And I think we have seen it in bits and pieces on Dynamite. And usually when I have criticisms for Dynamite when we do this show... It's because of stuff like this. And I think you saw tonight that trend in AEW booking come to fruition in a show that was a paradigm of everything I've been talking about that they've been doing for the last couple of months. And this, by the way, is all of a surprise because I was down on AEW at the tail end of 2019, the last show right before New Year's Eve I thought was awful. But the start of 2020, January and February, AEW was killing it. Dynamite was incredible. But they have just changed their booking style and it really came to a head tonight during All Out. So I'm going to 
be interested to see what Tony Khan says coming out of the show, what we see Wednesday on Dynamite, and if we have any noticeable booking or storytelling changes for AEW going forward. Because, you know, I, I don't think this is what the majority of their fans expected from the product. There are people who love AEW. If you love AEW, that's great. I really, really like AEW. But no matter how much I like it, that's not going to excuse putting on a show of the quality that they put on this Saturday night. So that is it for our AEW instant analysis of All Out. Think of it what you will. I'm sure I'll hear from plenty of you in the DMs and the tweets. Uh, Don't forget, by the way, to follow us on Twitter so you can send me those DMs and tweets at Getting Overcast. If you want to follow the Silver King personally, you can do that as well at Silverstein Adam, but the key is to follow at Getting Overcast. Also, please hit us up on Apple Podcasts. Leave that five-star rating and review on this podcast. It is all about D5. We will be back on Tuesday with a full show covering WWE, everything that happened on SmackDown this past Friday night. By the way, SmackDown was a great show. I am very excited to talk about SmackDown, plus everything that happened on Raw. It should be a loaded WWE edition on Tuesday, and then we will be back Thursday morning with a full breakdown of NXT Super Tuesday. Reminder, NXT will air on Tuesday this week, and the Dynamite After, I guess, edition of AEW Dynamite. We're back to two shows a week. We're back to our regular schedule. The Silver King is back to getting some sleep, and those are going to be the last words I leave you with tonight. So again, follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Don't forget to tune back in Tuesday. And I only have three words left for you. Bye for now. <laughs>